great mask look. I've just owned that. I've, I've been told that I look kind of like a mixture of Stone Cold Steve Austin and Jesse James with my bald head, goatee, and, uh, and the face mask. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be ugly for the sake of the, the kingdom expanding and loving people today. Um, but yeah, it, it really is a privilege to be here. I'm, I'm grateful for Scott uh, giving me the opportunity to preach. Um, we got visitors here today, and I know the, the majority of our family is still worshiping online. So just let me introduce myself. If you don't know me, my name is Michael Cody. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving as a ruling elder here for a few years now. Um, I've lived in Florence for the past 11 years working with Campus Outreach Ministries at UNA, um, and my family and I are actually in the process of transitioning to move to South Africa to work with Campus Outreach this time next year. Um, and so this might be my last time in the pulpit. I never know. I kind of look at every opportunity like it might be the last, so no pressure, right? <laughs> um, but it, it really is a privilege to be here. Um, Scott and I talked about, um, uh, about this time, and, and we collaborated a little bit together, and so we really do hope that this message really just kind of exudes care from the session on behalf of the people. So if you would, pray with me. Lord, I just pray today that more than anything else, you would get glory. Um, I don't pray that this would be a good message. I don't pray that people's ears would be tickled. I don't pray that this would happen, this would happen, this would happen. Of course, I want to see a lot of people impacted by this. But more than anything, Lord, I just pray that you would get glory. I do pray that your word would go forth and accomplish the work that you would have it to, Lord. So bless it today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're not going to be there for just a second, but we will be in Hebrews chapter 10 eventually, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, so COVID has really expanded our vocabulary, hasn't it? I mean, we're, we're hearing new phrases like social distancing, like mask up, right? Like all these things that forever, when we hear these phrases will point us back to this kind of perilous time in the first half of, of 2020. But it's not just new words. It's not just new phrases. In fact, there's one word that's been used a lot during this time. It's a really normal word. It's a really common word. But I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of taken on a new and expanded meaning. And that's the word essential, right? We've been hearing that word a lot. So, so historically, the word essential has meant basically what people need to survive, food, water, shelter, um, sometimes it means like the essence of something, you know, kind of like the bare bones. Um, back when I was in high school, I don't know how, I just remember this this week, I had this, this old CD called The Essential Billy Joel, right? It kind of had like those, those songs that you have to have, you know, to have his artistry, Uptown Girl, Piano Man, and the like. Um, so that's what essential has meant historically, but, but in March... We started hearing that word a lot just in terms of like the kinds of businesses that could stay open or the kinds of employees that could keep working during COVID. And so in 2020, that word essential, it does mean something that's necessary for survival, but it's also come to mean something that's really just necessary for the, the functional health of people in society. So in that spirit, I wonder, what would we Christians say are the essentials for a surviving and healthy Christian walk? What would we say? What would you say? So I saw a really poor answer to that question in my own heart a couple months ago during the pandemic, and I want to start with this story just to illustrate. I think this was mid-April, so we were probably about a month into quarantine, um, it was one of those slow Sunday mornings. Uh, I was in my gym clothes. I had my coffee. Um, 
about to watch Redeemer Church online with my family, there was kind of a, there, there was an aura of just ease in the Cody household that morning that is not normal for Sunday mornings. You know, norm, normally Sunday mornings are filled with kids not listening as we're trying to get them breakfast and get them dressed and trying to be on time for church. But there was just a more peaceful environment that morning. And I made a remark to Megan that, man, I'm really starting to like this new Sunday morning routine. Can anybody relate to that at all? But then it hit me that that is not godly in the least. Because I think what I liked, I liked the comfortable feeling. I liked the non-struggle with kids. I liked being able to do things on my own time, right? Starting the service when I wanted, pausing it if I needed to go to the bathroom, all that kind of stuff. But I really think what was going on on a deeper level, because I was just so excited about the comfort of that time, was I think my heart was saying Christian fellowship in general and church specifically They're just not that essential. I think that was going on in my heart. See, I I think COVID-19, particularly at the beginning, you know, as the elders, as we were trying to figure church out, you know, we, we stopped gathering together for a while and went straight online. So we were trying to figure some things out. And I think in a lot of ways that time, it kind of, it forced us somewhat of like a fast, you know, it forced a fast from this gathering. But for me, I realized in that moment that 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 temporary fast In a lot of ways, I'd turn it into a feast of my own comfort. And so biblically, what we want to look at today is how do we need to think about the essentials of fellowship and of church during these times of distance? Okay? So like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews 10, but but I really just feel compelled just to be honest about something at the beginning. Um, Ever since Scott asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, I, I think I've agonized over this sermon probably more than any other I've ever given. And I think I agonize because I really struggle with the fear of man. And I feel like this is probably going to be one of those sermons that I don't just get pats on the back for. Um, I really fear being misheard. I I fear people kind of looking at this as the whole sermon's about coming back to church rather than really what it's about and examining our own hearts. Um, I fear for the people who have returned that... (laughs) you might feel superior after hearing this because you've made the righteous decision to return and misunderstand that this is about all of us examining our heart towards Christian fellowship in general. Um, If I'm being honest, I I really fear blame that I or the other elders might receive if somebody hears this and feels guilty and comes back and gets the virus. I fear the financial loss the church might take if somebody gets upset and leaves. I fear people thinking that this is about money. We want people to come back so they can give. It's really not. The church is fine right now, honestly. God's blessed it. That's not what it's about. And real talk, um, I fear personal loss. I I told you all that we're, we're about to move over the ocean. I fear people getting upset and pulling their support from us. I fear people getting mad maybe even avoiding me or avoiding the other elders because that's a lot easier to do than approaching us, which, man, if you feel like I err, please do. Please do. Please come to your shepherds. And and, and I just humbly submit all that to you because I just want you to hear my heart that, that I want to be as biblically faithful as I can on behalf of our session to help us know how do we think biblically 
about re-engaging Christian fellowship in a healthy way. So Hebrews 10, we're going to start uh, in verse 19. And the author begins by speaking of the blessings that we have in Christ. He says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an, un, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the author starts with that really important word in the Bible, therefore, right? He, he is pointing back to what he just finished saying. What he just finished saying at the beginning of chapter 10, he, he's talking about how the, the Jewish law and all the old ritual ceremonies, all the, the nuances of temple life, all of those things were only shadows of what was about to come in Jesus. So all of the cleansing rituals that they did, they offered no actual cleansing, right? They were just pictures. They were just symbols. That's why they had to repeat them every year. It just simply served as a reminder, right, that they needed a deeper cleansing, which would ultimately come in Jesus. And he speaks of how Christ was that once and for all sacrifice to cleanse his people from sin, to set us apart as God's people. Jesus is the great high priest who ushers us in to the fellowship of God. And now his law, it's not just codified in rituals. It's written on our hearts. Because now we're truly forgiven. We're truly cleansed by the work of Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit applying that to us. So this is how the church stands we stand right with God. We stand righteous with God on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf as we eagerly wait on his return. So that's, that's, that's the context. That's what comes before this. And the author says, in light of that, therefore, brothers, notice he addresses brothers, that's plural. He addresses us. He doesn't just address me. He doesn't just address you. I think a lot of the time we forget that the New Testament is mostly about what life together in the church needs to look like because most letters are written to groups, to churches. He says, since we have confidence, right? We have confidence. Why do we have confidence to stand before God? It's because the work's been complete, right? It's, it's because the sin and condemnation-killing work of Jesus' life and death has already been poured out in our place. So we have confidence that that work is complete. We have confidence to enter the holy places. That's a reference back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the holy place in the temple, some people refer to as the holy of holies, right? That, that is the innermost part of the temple where nobody could come except for one priest once a year when the people would bring the offerings for the priest to sacrifice on their behalf. And the priest would go into that holy of holies to make atonement for people's sin. But here's the catch. Some of you probably heard this. They used to tie a rope around the priest's foot because if the priest went in and there was any semblance of uncleanness, an unclean heart, an unclean lifestyle, the priest would drop dead in the presence of holy God. And they'd have to drag him out. And now this verse is saying, we have confidence to enter the holy places. What at one time nobody could do we now have an all-access VIP pass to the throne room of God by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That's big. 
because the temple, it was a symbol of the holy presence of God. Jesus is the ultimate temple, and his body is the curtain that was torn. There was a curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. When Christ died on the cross, his body was physically ripped apart. Spiritually, he was under the judgment of God. And it's as if the, the, the thing, the, the sin, the dividing wall between us and the Lord was ripped apart. And now we can enter in. And now Jesus is our great high priest. See, they didn't have to tie a rope around Jesus' foot because he was blameless. He was sinless. He passed the test, but yet he was still killed. He was still killed because not only was he the priest, he was also the sacrifice on the altar of God, right? He was killed, but he raised, and that's what makes Jesus different than all those animals they sacrificed. Remember, they had to do that every year. Right? They had to annually repeat that sacrifice because there was no actual cleansing. Right? Jesus, by rising from the dead, proved that that was enough. That actually satisfied the justice of God. And now we can stand forgiven of our sins and raised to new life as well. And the call is, let us draw near. Right? Let, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. We have the ability now, unlike the old days, to know the Lord fully as he's revealed himself to us. We have the ability to enjoy his presence coming face to face with him because our great high priest has swung the door wide open and now we can walk in in full assurance with our consciences sprinkled and our bodies washed. Those are, those are references to we are actually cleansed, right? Water in the Bible, usually in these contexts, it's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 talks about the Lord sprinkling clean water on our hearts, removing our heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. So again, this isn't talking about outer rituals. This is talking about something that has actually happened in history and has now happened in our hearts, right? So now we can have the confidence to draw near the throne of grace. Guys, this would have been so radical to the Jewish readers of this. This book was written primarily to Jewish Christians, although the church was expanding and more Gentiles were coming in. You see that in the book of Acts. But it would have been so radical because they could not fathom being in this close proximity to God. They could not fathom standing this close to holiness itself. But here the author is reminding us that not only is God holy, but he is also full of love, grace, and mercy, and he's already done everything to allow us into his presence. So the bottom line, we are loved by God. We are welcomed into his presence through the substitutionary work of Christ, and we can never lose this because it's been completed once and for all. As we'll sing in a minute, we have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. So then in verses 23 through 25, uh, the author moves to talking about what, what a proper relationships within the body of Christ need to look like. He says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to the confession, right? 
This isn't just something we believe. It's something that we believe so deeply that we just have to confess it. Again, this is corporate language, right? This is something that we believe and publicly profess together. And the author here is saying, cling to that. Love that. Believe that to the end. Why does he keep harping on all this us language? Why why does he keep harping on all of this stay steadfast? Because he's writing to persecuted believers. He talks about that later in this chapter, that the people's property had been plundered, which they accepted joyfully. But what's probably going on here is the, the persecution under Nero has broken out. 64 AD, there was a great fire that destroyed a lot of the city of Rome which Nero very likely started, but what ended up happening was the, the, the early Christians got blamed for that. And so this mass wave of persecution broke out. So the Christians, a lot of the times, they were on the run. They were meeting in hiding, like a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are. Modern day, it was kind of like some forced social distancing, right? But not through a virus, <laughs> through the threat of the sword. And the author knows that under persecution, so often... People are tempted to leave. They're tempted to not hold fast to what they believe. They're tempted to recant. And the author here is saying, no, you must stay faithful. He's calling to the faith of Lemuel Haynes, who was, a, he was the first ordained African-American minister in New England back in the mid-1700s. He was a Revolutionary War vet, served as a faithful minister for years. And he wrote his own epitaph for his tombstone that said this, Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner, who ventured into eternity trusting wholly on the merits of Christ for salvation. In the full belief of the great doctrines he preached while on earth, he invites his children and all who read this to trust their eternal interest to the same foundation. That's good, isn't it? That's that heart-level confession of hope to the end. Guys, the gospel gives us so many precious blessings, right? We're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're right with God all access passed to his presence, but it also places demands on the life of the church. And you see that in the next verse, in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If you were translating that literally, it would say something like, think hard about how to irritate each other. That word stir up, literally, you could translate it irritate. It's almost like you're bugging people, right? He's, he's calling us to bug each other to Christ-likeness. And think hard about it. Think hard about how to bug each other. Do you have anybody in your life who does that? Are you that for anybody? That's the call for the gospel. Stir one another up, right? This is a mutual thing. This isn't just the job of the ministers up front. This isn't just the job of the pastors, of the elders, of the deacons. This is a call for the whole family of faith to mutually stir one another up. It's a call for active church membership, we might use today's today's words. Not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. We don't know exactly what, but something was going on. Something was going on that made fellowship within the body difficult. And some people were outright leaving, right? We, we might, in some ways, equate that to COVID today, right? COVID has made fellowship, in a lot of ways, very difficult, right? The racial tensions in our country have often brought division, right? We live in a time 
where, where, where true unity in the church, right? Where true stirring up, irritating, constant presence with each other fellowship is very, very difficult. John Calvin supposes that it's probably something about Jewish and Gentile relations, which that would make sense if you read through Acts, because anytime a church gets planted and starts getting more multi-ethnic, there's all kind of cultural things that make true fellowship hard. Um, it could have just been a spirit of independence, right? Like we see in our day. We, we, we're Americans. We, we don't like to think of ourselves as dependent on others, right? It's just so rooted in pride. But the author doesn't tell us exactly what it is going on that, that's causing people to neglect meeting. But he's saying, stop it. He's saying, stop neglecting to meet. The word meet is, is the word episynagoge, synagogue. It's a reference to gathering, right? It's, it's, it's reference to gathering all people in one place. There's a responsibility, right, for the household of God to meet together. So the author here, he's addressing our hearts toward broad fellowship, right, in general, but also very specific, the gathering, the assembly, the church. So I want us to do the same. Let's examine our hearts. Scott's said this several times, and I think it's just very important for us to ask this. Have we allowed social distancing to become spiritual distancing? Has individualism taken root in our heart? Is there some unchecked pride there in thinking that I don't need anybody else but myself? Is there anger with other people that needs to be confessed and reconciliation sought? Am I just blind to it? Am I blind to seeing my need to be stirred up? Have, have we forgotten how much we need the body of Christ to spur us on, to confront us, to encourage us, that we might draw near to God together? That story I was telling you at the beginning what I was wrestling with in April, I think for a little while I forgot that. So in light of the blessings of the gospel, the call is for us to consider how we can irritate one another and to continue gathering together for the sake of our own holiness. But there's a sharp warning, and you see that in the last couple of verses. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So that's a warning. A lot of the time we don't like warnings. We think that sounds mean. I want you to keep in mind, though, that warning follows a blessing. It comes after him talking about all the privileges that we have as children and in the household of God. Right? So there's a sense in which this warning is set in contrast to, don't you know all these great privileges you have over here? Well, here's what happens if you neglect these amazing things that the Lord's given you. He says, if anyone goes on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Man, that's hard, isn't it? To me, like, that's one of the hardest verses in the whole Bible to explain. Um, because, because what the author's saying here, if someone goes on sinning deliberately, he, he's talking about, if you read contextually, either beliefs or a lifestyle that shows that they are just totally alienated from Christ. It's not talking about if you have any sin. It's saying if your lifestyle shows that you have no love 
no fidelity, no commitment to Christ, right? That's what sinning deliberately is in the biblical context. 1 John uses the phrase, if anyone walks in darkness, the truth's not in him. It's not saying if you have a little bit of darkness in you. It's saying that if your lifestyle is characterized by the things of the kingdom of darkness, right, you're not really one of God's people. Okay, so, so what the author's saying here is if someone goes on sinning deliberately, if someone who shows by their lifestyle that they have not held fast to that confession of hope, right, that they have rejected Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, you might be wondering right now, because we are a church that very proudly professes and believes that you cannot truly lose your salvation if you truly have your salvation. So how do we make sense of that? Well, the author's not saying you can lose your salvation. John 10, 28, Jesus said that all the Father gives to him will come to him, and no one will snatch them from his hand, right? So it's not saying that Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough. It's not saying that you can lose faith if you actually had it. It's talking about, again, that these are people who showed that they have not held fast to the confession of hope. They have denied Christ, and they're not true believers. And because they're not true believers, that's the one sin sacrifice doesn't cover because we're justified by faith. It's not saying they can't ever be saved, right? They can turn to Christ and be saved. He's just talking about the condition that they're in in that moment. And and sometimes I've heard people teach this kind of in this way. If you get away from the fellowship, then you're in danger of falling into gross sin and losing your faith. And obviously, I I take issue with that losing your faith language because I would say what Scripture teaches is that you never actually had that faith. But there is truth to that. I mean, 1 John 2 says that people went out from us because they were not of us, right? And, And honestly, I mean, we all, Christians, we all probably know people who at one time seemed to have some kind of love for Jesus, and now they either outright deny him with their words or there's no fruit or evidence in their life that show they actually know him. I've seen that a lot in the last 15 years of being a Christian, a lot. And it's always for different reasons. You know, sometimes it's like some real gross sin, you know, in their life. Sometimes it's just apathy. But you know what the thing that's always in common with literally everybody I have seen walk away from the faith is? They get out of fellowship. No matter what the nature of whatever gross sin in their life is, they get out of fellowship, they get out of the church, they get out of that mutually stirring up one anothering kinds of fellowship. So that is true, that if we get out of fellowship, we do fall into that kind of danger, but I don't think that's exactly what this passage is saying. Read it. It doesn't say neglecting to meet leads to this sin. It says it is that sin. Neglecting to meet is directly connected to sinning deliberately, which is connected to not holding fast to the confession of hope. Again, Calvin paraphrases, alienation from his people, there is a fine line between alienation from his people and alienation from Christ itself. And that just makes sense, right? I mean, again, what is is the evidence that 1 John gives for being truly in the faith? You love the body. We're called the body of Christ, after all. So let's put all this together. Let's put this warning together. No one can lose their salvation. John 6, John 10, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, etc., etc., etc. We call that doctrine the perseverance of the saints. 
But again, we tend to see the blessings of the gospel almost entirely individualistically, almost entirely personally. I can draw near to the throne of grace, which is absolutely true. But again, remember, who is the primary audience of the New Testament church? Is it individuals? No, it's churches. It's, it's, it's groups. There is an emphasis in the New Testament about the corporate life of the people of God. So in verse 22... Let us draw near with full assurance. That's not just saying, I get to hang out with Jesus and my lazy boy, although you can. What it's saying more fully is we together have access to this amazing blessing. And we can joyfully live together in this reality. And I think that's why it's really proper, because I get asked this question a fair amount, and what I do as an evangelist Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? And I usually try to answer it this way, that going to church does not cause anyone to be a Christian. There are plenty of lost people in churches. There are probably lost people here today, right? Being in the assembly, it does nothing to to gain salvation, right? It's only faith in Christ alone that brings that about. But, but, because some people are like, that's good to know. The New Testament knows nothing about a true Christian who's not part of a local church. It just doesn't. When you see the gospel start to expand in Acts, you know what the first thing that happens is? Churches are planted. (laughs) Again, the letters are written to Christians who it's just assumed that they are in churches. They are under the authority of God-ordained spiritual leaders. They're, They're under the preaching and the sacraments and discipline of the word. So guys, fellowship... And the church is part of what the Lord uses to help us hold fast to our confession. Does that make sense? If you're really a Christian, if you really hold to this, you will persevere to the end. That's going to happen, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it on to completion. Don't say mighty, he says will, right? That's good news. But part of the human means that the Lord uses to ensure that, part of what the Lord uses to preserve the faith of his people, it's Christian fellowship. It's the church. The best quote I ever heard about that, um, I heard someone say, perseverance of the saints is a joint venture. Meaning we don't do it alone. We, we do it together. And so really the author of Hebrews, man, he's just proclaiming what the core value of the early church is that you see in Acts. That fellowship and church is essential. It is absolutely essential for the life and health of a Christian. And so that's the, that's the exegesis of the passage. And I know there's all kinds of questions right now about what does that mean for us right now? What does that mean for us? And, and, and I want to try for the rest of the time to help us think about, about the essentials of fellowship in the church, specifically during these times that supposedly call for distance. First thing, let me say this. Like, we've had a dose of fellowship in the church through technology, and we should be grateful for that, right? Man, I mean, it is absolutely better than nothing. I mean, there's real blessings there. The songs, the messages, the Bible studies during the week. I'm tremendously grateful for that. I just wonder, though, if we have let this dose that we've received numb us a little bit to the need of deep, stirring up, irritating face-to-face relationships and the means of grace that only being physically present provides. Because, guys, virtual services, is, it's not church. 
It's just not. The word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, it's a gathering, right? You can't do that online. Right? The, Lord, the Lord values people. He values relationship. And so there are blessings there. That's why we don't just pull it, right? We're, we're glad to provide these blessings to anybody who needs to take advantage of them. But it's not church. We get the sermons and songs, but we don't get the sacraments. You don't get elders and deacons that have been called to shepherd and to serve. You don't get the, just the mysterious grace that, that being present together assembled brings. And I think because of all that, if we are not assembled together, we miss out on a huge piece of gospel blessings. Does that make sense? We, we, th- there's a sense in which that whole let us draw near, it, it can't happen to the same degree if I'm in my gym clothes with my coffee in front of a TV. It doesn't mean that's bad, but it does mean it's not church. And it does mean that that is not the ultimate will of God that we do that. Again, we went through a fast, right? What are fasts intended to be? They are temporarily depriving ourselves of something. They're never intended to be normal. They're never intended to be permanent. If you try to fast permanently, you will starve and die. And so I understand that that this is an incredibly nuanced time. And the Bible affords for that, by the way. I mean, if you read 1 Peter, those are Christians on the run. They are probably not formal gathering in church services at the time. I do think that the Bible does afford some nuance here. And I do believe that some people probably should continue to stay home. So I just want to take some of these biblical principles and address a few different groups, again, just to help us think biblically, and, and then we'll wrap up. And the first group I want to talk to is all of us, whether you're here, whether you've made the decision to come back or not. I just think the call for all of us in light of all this, check our hearts. How how is our hearts toward true Christian fellowship, right? How, How is our heart toward the kind of fellowship that is so committed to stirring up, even irritating us towards Christlikeness? You know how we can know that? Are we actually reaching out for it? Are we actually reaching out to others, whatever that means for you? Are we reaching out to try to help others intentionally pursue godliness, pursue holiness, fight sin in our lives? Those means are still available, by the way. COVID might have taken away worship services for a minute. It didn't take away the body of Christ, right? So that is still available. So I think, again, all of us, whether we're here or not, we need to, we need to ask ourselves, do we, are we valuing Christian fellowship the way that the Bible demands us to. Have we bought into the lie again that social distance equals spiritual distance? Are are we using COVID as an opportunity to hide ourselves from each other? Is there part of us that is enjoying the freedom to do our own thing a little too much? Are we keeping people at a distance? I mean, I think in a very real way, if you were to read the Old Testament, the Bible would have called this time a curse. The Bible would have called this isolation, this inability to gather as much, it would call it a curse. Are we viewing it as a blessing? I was. That's not, that's not condemnation, that's confession. Are we trying to walk with God alone? Are we serving the idols of comfort? Are we serving the idols of reputation? Maybe, maybe you're feeling shame during this time. Maybe, maybe you've gotten caught up in sin. Maybe you feel guilty about something. And, and you don't want to get back in fellowship because you don't want anybody to know. Man, come to the light. There's healing there. 
That's what the church is for. Are we idolizing control? Man, it's, it's, it's easy to do that already, right? I mean, good Lord, in the days of social media, we can literally control almost what everybody thinks about us, right? Because you don't have to have intimate face-to-face relationships. Is, is COVID pushing us toward that even more? So we can be here or at home and settle for not truly being in fellowship where people know us or challenge, or challenge us or encourage us. And I just want to reiterate, if we neglect that, we are not just potentially in danger, we are already engaging in the danger. Early on in Hebrews, the author says, take care, lest an evil, unbelieving heart rises up in you, leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another today, (laughs) right? Dangerous spot. So please don't see this as a slap on the wrist. Um, Man, Remember the blessing of Christ, that he has opened the door for us to meet God and pursue holiness together. Even last week um, in the service, we were going to take communion, and I don't even remember how it happened. Um, Something Scott said, I felt really convicted that there's a, in Matthew, I think it's chapter 5, Jesus talks about if, if you're going to bring your gift to the altar in the temple, but you remember somebody has something against you, before you bring that gift, you need to go make it right with your brother. And I just felt convicted because I, something popped up in my head, that there was something that I had to address with somebody that I hadn't, and I've been holding on to for a while. And I just couldn't in good conscience take communion, right? I had to go out in the lobby and text this person that I was sorry, and, you know, and then I came back in, and took communion, and, and it, it had a different meaning then, right? Because it was, it was a reminder that that sin and all other sins in my life paid for in full by the blood of Christ shed for me, the body of Christ broken for me. Guys, I don't know if that conviction would have happened outside the assembly of church. You know what I'm saying? It's like there, there, there are blessings in this fellowship that are, that are not afforded anywhere else. So that's all of us. We need deep fellowship in our lives, not just to be in a building. The next group, man, if you're, if you're somebody who would be considered high risk, maybe you, you, you have the disease or you're showing the symptoms of the disease, elderly, pre-existing conditions, you're caring for a newborn at home, maybe you're in, you're in a caregiving situation for people who are more at risk, listen, I want you to hear the session say this. We certainly believe that there are situations where it would be unwise for people to return, right? There there are situations we believe that that coming to an assembly would be dangerous to yourself and other people. Different situations that all deserve different considerations. And I will not bind any of your consciences here. Again, I do think the Bible allows for nuance. But I still must ask, is your heart to return? Is your heart to return? Are you praying for the ability to return? Are you reaching out for stirring up mutual fellowship, even if you can't come in the building? Are you engaging where you're able? The next group I want to talk to, and this one's close to my heart, parents with kids. Um, I know that there's people who are afraid of bringing your kids back right now, not even just for COVID, but just being afraid of keeping them in service the whole time. There's a fear of distracting others. Hear this on behalf of the session. We love you. And we love your kids, and we don't view them as a hindrance to worship. I mean, there's kids grumbling right now. My kids are grumbling right now. I can hear them, right? Those grumbles are the groanings of the kingdom, right? 
Because we, we have the responsibility and the duty as shepherds to help you shepherd them to know Christ. So you're not going to be shamed for noise. <laughs> you're not going to be shamed for that. I know it's hard, guys. I, I'm, I'm the parent of three under six right now. And sometimes it's even embarrassing. You know what? If you must, we have places set up outside to go take them, right? If you must. And so you might ask, well, if that's true, why do I even bring them? Well, because church isn't just what happens on the stage. Church is the assembly, right? So you might, have, you might have a hard time focusing on what's going up in front one Sunday. And you might have to take your kids out there. You know what? It might be a conversation with one of our deacons out in the parking lot where you make a need known to them. And in some way, that conversation draws you into a deeper relationship with Christ. Or it might be you bringing your child and then being able to look back and see how valuable the assembly is to you, that it was worth the risk. Okay, so I just want you to hear it. We're, we're going to have kids' church soon, okay? But listen, kids' church is a fairly recent invention. <laughs> it's an unessential. And please know that if that is the only reason you're staying home, we want you and your chaos back. We really do. And the final group is for anybody else who's choosing not to return yet. We miss you. We love you. You heard my heart at the beginning, so please don't take this personally. Um, take it properly, maybe I should say. We're doing all we can for precautions. I mean, if, 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 if you're at home right now and could see the faces, you, you'd see a sea of masks, a bunch of bank robbers. We're masking. We got the rows roped off to create distance. We're dismissing people carefully. We're taking the temperature of people who are saying things up front. We're doing the whole nine yards, and we truly do believe that our church is every bit as safe as you would be at Walmart, as you would be at a restaurant, as you would be at a crowded workplace, or as you would be at any kind of home gathering. And so my question for you is, are we not partaking in essential fellowship for essential reasons? And if you're saying, listen, if you are truly staying home because you're at risk, if you're truly staying at home because you don't want to spread anything to others, you're trying to love others, if you're actually totally quarantining from going out, okay, well, that's why we still do the virtual services. <laughs> Pursue the fellowship online or through other means. But, man, if you're continuing to get out and about, if you're still going to gyms, weddings, parties, big gatherings, if, if, if the quarantine from church doesn't line up with the rest of life, you're staying at home because it's easier. In light of all the gospel blessings and demands, I just say I think it's time to come back. It's very countercultural, but biblical. That this essential fellowship is only fully available in the church. Have we bought into the Western individualistic privatized religion lie? that Sabbath gatherings are unessential. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine in another city, part of another denomination, who gave me a great reminder this week that said, we don't live in the same economy as the world. So is it the wisdom of Scripture, or is it the wisdom of the world that is driving our decisions during this time? Romans 12, let us be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Guys, this is a house of grace. 
And if, if right now the Lord is calling anybody to repent of some kind of idol or whatever, you can be assured that you're forgiven and you're cleansed. My little girl's favorite verse, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there will be no shame upon your return. As we all walk on this journey, this pilgrimage towards glory, we're, we're treating each other with the, the same kind of grace that we've been shown ourselves as we seek to stir one another up towards love and good works. We love you. You will be welcome back. There is no shame. And if you're upset with anything I've said today, if, if, if you think I've erred biblically, again, I, I, I invite you to come and, and help me see from the Bible why, and, and I would rejoice in being convinced of that. If you need help processing this with all the nuances of your situation, man, I invite you to let your elder know. Let, let him walk you through it. Y'all talk. Because, guys, today, just hear this. This is the last thing I'm going to say. We, we just long today and from now on to help you think biblically during these confusing times. We long to be together again, captive to the word of God, with our community that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. We believe the goodness of the gospel can only be tasted fully in its proper corporate setting. And we believe Christ is Lord over this pandemic and that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against his church. Church, we love you, and we, we consider it a privilege to walk through the sins and struggles and hardships of life with you. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard times for all of us in different ways. And I just praise you, Lord, that you have freely bestowed your grace upon helpless sinners. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. And whether we are at home or whether we have returned, there are none of us, Lord, who are more or less needy of the grace and righteousness of Christ in our place. And so, Father, I pray that just in light of the gospel, in light of the love of Christ, we would all consider, Lord, how we might love your church more. And for anybody who is here who does not yet know the love of Christ, man, I just pray that the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ once for all completed, sacrificial, sin-destroying work in their place would be real in their hearts for the first time today. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.